from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. So welcome back to another special edition of The Cut Podcast. Uh, I'm very happy to be sitting here with David Wilton. Um, David, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and explain to our audience a little bit about how you come to this subject. Uh, Well, I came to this subject probably as a teenager when I first realized what circumcision was and um, began to understand and realize the differences between intact and circumcised. Um, At that time, there wasn't a lot of uh, activity going on. Most of it was located on the West Coast, and I was in Texas, so... I wasn't really able to participate and was really not mature enough at that time to participate. Um, It wasn't really until 2006, probably 10 or 15 years later, that I began to really get involved. And that's when uh, I started living in San Francisco and began to meet and uh, participate in the activities of the Bay Area Intactivist, which are in the East Bay uh, for the most part. And um, it was sometime in that area that I attended my first uh, international symposium, the ones that are put on by Marilyn Milos and sponsored by No Cirque and are now beginning to be sponsored by Intact America. And that was in Seattle. And um, that was 2006. Um, that, incidentally, was the same year that HIV and circumcision began to uh be associated with each other when the three African RCTs, random controlled trials, were published, um, allegedly showing a protective effect from circumcision against um, infection with HIV. Uh, It was that year that I began the blog, Male Circumcision HIV, a blog that's named exactly as what I intended to write about when I first started it. and has now evolved into, I would say, more of an intactivist site than just a site that's focused on HIV and and how it's impacted by circumcision. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think uh, one of the main reasons that I wanted to have this conversation with you is because, um, as I touch on in the film, and uh, anyone who's familiar with the history of circumcision knows, um, in the United States... Uh, every sort of generation has a new medical rationale for continuing the practice of male circumcision. And, um, you know, without a doubt, the uh, rationale, the medical rationale of our age is that of prevention of HIV. Um, as you mentioned, in 2006, we started to see um, some studies being done in Africa around this. I want to get into a little bit more detail on those studies and if, mm-hmm. if, if you can mm-hmm. share with our audience um, sort of how that started, who the main players are, that kind of thing. But I, I should also, we, we should also, also mention that you're a lawyer by training. Right. I, I'm a lawyer. I um, began practicing law in 2000. My area of focus has not been in the area of of circumcision or anything like that. I know there's some lawyers who've done a lot of uh, lawsuits uh, on circumcisions around the issue of consent and botched circumcisions and that kind of thing. My focus has been criminal defense for the most part. Um, But um, 
I've consulted a little bit on, on these issues uh, with the Attorneys for the Rights of the Child, which incidentally I was just recently invited to be a, a member of the board, so I've joined their board at this point. Um, and I've also uh, consulted a little bit with some of the issues related to the ballot measure that occurred uh, this summer here in San Francisco. Um, but yes, I'm a lawyer, but uh, have not focused you know, that much on the issue of circumcision right. until more recently. And we'll come back to some of the, uh, the events of the summer, because I think you have a unique mm -hmm. perspective that would be really mm -hmm. interesting. You could sort of give us a blow-by-blow <clears throat> blow, um, on what happened around the legal battles mm -hmm. uh, surrounding the ballot initiative. But let's start with um, the recent uh, sort of push uh, around circumcision and HIV. How did this start? Who were the players involved? And if you could tell uh, tell our audience a little bit about the randomized control trials, where they occurred, what they said. We'll go into some analysis of them in a little bit, but if you could just sort of give, for someone who's unfamiliar with the recent history of this, what how did things happen? Well, <clears throat> for many years, um, circumcision has been touted as a... Um, kind of uh, procedure that could at least slow down the infection rates of, of HIV. That, I believe, has been uh, in the literature since the 80s. Um, but all of those uh, studies and papers and discussion of that has been primarily through observational data. And it wasn't until sometime in the early 2000s that um, there were a number of people who got some grants to do some studies in Africa. Those were Bertrand Auvert, who's a French uh, researcher and epidemiologist, <clears throat> a guy named Robert Bailey, who's an American up in Illinois, and another uh, gentleman by the name of Daniel Halperin, who I believe currently, I'm not sure where he is currently, but at the time I believe he was working at the Department of Public Health um, here in San Francisco and then eventually at, in the, um, at Harvard at their School of Public Health and eventually consulted somewhat with UNAIDS as well. So these three individuals, along with their co-authors, uh, began to work towards getting grants to do random controlled trials in Africa. Uh, by roughly 2003, they'd gotten the grants, they'd designed the studies, and they had gotten all of the various parts in place to begin the studies. So 2003, they began these studies. There was one in, uh, in South Africa, there was one in Kenya, and there was one in Uganda. And by 2006, they had reached the point where they felt like they had enough data, uh, incidentally, without completing the studies, to go ahead and publish. And so that's, that's really kind of the background uh, of, of how these studies got from, you know, the idea popping up in the 80s with the observational studies showing some countries with lower rates of HIV among the circumcised and higher rates among the uncircumcised are intact to the point of actually doing the studies and publishing in 2006. All of these people that have been involved, you know, they've been involved from the beginning. Daniel Halperin has uh, been quoted uh, in media basically discussing this issue back when he didn't have the grants in place, uh, talking about how it was a travesty that the HIV AIDS community was not jumping on this because even at that time before the studies were done he believed that circumcision would have this huge impact on the rates of HIV particularly in Africa um, 
so that's that's kind of a very short backgrounder on on where this came from and what did their studies show and also if you can touch on you mentioned that they uh, didn't actually finish them so what why didn't they finish them and what did the studies show they the way they set it up is they had like any random controlled trial they had one group of men who were circumcised at the beginning another group of men who were not circumcised um, supposedly and allegedly they gave them equal amounts of instruction on safe sex practices and avoidance of HIV provided them with unlimited numbers of condoms circumcised one group left the other group intact and then sent them out into the world with these sort of periodic follow-ups every I believe it was every month they would come in and they would be tested and uh, you know they would keep track of those who serial converted and those who didn't and uh, I think the groups were depending on the study and again it's been a couple of years since I've read and reread these studies so I, I may have the numbers off a little bit but I think there was one group where there was 3,000 in one sample and 3,000 in the other sample uh, and then there was another group where they had 1,500 and it was divided up around roughly 800 were circumcised and the other 700, 750 were not circumcised. So the, the, the studies were of different sizes of, of samples, people that they had involved uh, who were subjects of the studies, but they were operated as any standard random controlled trial is. They weren't double blind because they couldn't be. I mean, obviously, if you're circumcised, you're going to know it. If you're intact, you're going to know it. But they were random and they were controlled. They had a control group and they had a, an experimental group, the experimental group being those who were circumcised. And typically, uh, in all, across all three studies, the reduction was somewhere between 50 and 60 percent, which translated into, and again, don't have my numbers precise, but it's between something like uh, 20 and 25 uh, serial conversions more in one group than the other. Right. So you might have had, let's say, 3,000 people in one group, 70 of them serial converted in the intact group, and then you had the experimental group, another 3,000 men, 50 serial converted uh, and had HIV. So you had a difference of roughly 20 actual serial conversions uh, in this group of 6,000 men. So um, when you look at it like that, the actual reduction was somewhere in the single percentile. I mean, it's like 1 or 2% actual reduction as opposed to this 50 or 70, 50 to 60% number that they were throwing around, which had to do with relative changes. So, uh, so th that's, that's kind of how the studies were done and conducted. Now, the reason they stopped them early Instead of going the full 22 months in the case of one of the studies, they stopped it at 18, was because they said that, well, our results have been so great and so wonderful, and this prevention technique or technology has been so successful that it would be un unethical to go to the 22-month period because at that point, all these other men are going to seroconvert, and if we can circumcise them now, they won't seroconvert, and so therefore we have to stop the study and circumcise everyone who wants to be circumcised. I'm sorry, it just sounds so ridiculous, especially like, you know, they grew a conscience at that point, as right. if the, the people who had zero converted before for their experiment, like, who cares about them? It's just so right. twisted. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's crazy. And the, the funny thing about uh, all of this is that 
all of the follow-up studies that have come out or, or the reinterpretation and the, 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 the churning of the data that's occurred after the studies were stopped in 2006 has done nothing but just, you know, the numbers just keep getting better and better and better and better. And, you know, no accounting for such things as um, non-sexual transmission, no accounting for such things as uh, loss to follow-up. I mean, there were several hundreds of participants who were lost to follow-up, both in the circumcised and uncircumcised group, that you don't know what happened to them. And with such small numbers, a 20, number of 20 actual men difference between those who circumverted and those who didn't, uh, or those who circumverted in each group, you know, that's not a huge number. And if you've lost 300 people to, to, to follow-up, I mean, you don't know what happened to those people, and you really can't say with any certainty what's going to happen. Uh, going forward. And what's their hypothesis as to a mechanism of action? Why is it that cutting off the foreskin, in their view, reduces the transmission of HIV? Well, in the studies themselves, they're very careful to say that they didn't know why that the circumcised group had lower rates of seroconversion versus the intact group. But in commentaries, follow-up commentaries, they've often uh, resorted to speculation. And the speculation has been everything from, uh, you know, their keratinization of the remaining tissue makes it tougher for HIV to penetrate the skin to um, the loss of Langerhans cells, cells that they say are particularly vulnerable to HIV, has created uh, less of an, of an entry point to any number of things. I mean, they, they, they speculate. And... What's interesting about the Langerhans cells is that roughly at the same time that the RCTs were published, there was a Dutch group that published a paper on Langerhans cells saying that Langerhans cells were very effective at destroying HIV. And uh, the thing about it is, is they postulated that the reason that um, men are still vulnerable and women are still vulnerable who also have Langerhans cells in their mucosal tissue, genital mucosal tissue, is because these cells are overcome by the sheer number of HIV uh, virus that, that they're exposed to. And it has nothing to do with them being vulnerable. It has to do with they're just not up to the task by themselves of, of, of creating this barrier um, that would be needed. So there's contradictory research out there. And of course, the circumcision advocates are not particularly interested in, in addressing that and um, and to my knowledge really haven't addressed that very very well although I will say that they have actually um, oftentimes uh, conformed their message to the objections that they've heard uh, in, the, in the community and in the research community and also just among laymen on the various intactivist sites and a good example of that is um, risk and uh, disinhibition They've done uh, several studies in Africa showing that men who are circumcised do not become disinhibited from using uh, condoms and uh, practicing other safer sex type methods. So um, they've been very careful to go out and look for uh, studies and to design studies, mostly um, questionnaire type studies where they uh, give a little bit of speech on what's safer sex uh, and then go out and sort of question people at various intervals about are you practicing safer sex and then testing them to see if they've followed up and whatnot, and um, and they've 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 actually uh, 
published some studies saying there is no risk disinhibition. Um, but under questionable circumstances, in my opinion, because they obviously already have um, quite a bias towards trying to get new data that supports them and supports what they're doing, uh, which has become a very, very lucrative area of, of research and HIV prevention uh, programming and whatnot. It's true also that, <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken, in the studies they speak of circumcision in their conclusions as a form of surgical vaccine. Is that right? They... We, we have heard that quite frequently. They talk about this as a vaccine, a vaccine with a 50 to 60 percent uh, uh, efficacy. And, um, uh, you know, they like to think of it that way. Um, but of course, it's not because vaccines typically are not don't become less effective uh, the more you're exposed. And circumcision definitely does not uh, does not help if you're if you're practicing unsafe sex uh, the more times that you engage in unsafe sexual practices the more likely you are to be uh, infected with HIV and that doesn't matter whether you're intact or circumcised they're very careful to point that out in the original studies um, uh, so it doesn't really fit that and so I, I think they oftentimes hedge their language and they use very kind of uh, precatory language, uh, I think that's the right word, precatory, uh, where they say, you know, this is like a vaccine. They don't say it is a vaccine, but they say it's like, it behaves like one. It has the uh, kind of result that's sort of like a vaccine, but they're, I think oftentimes they're careful not to say that it is in fact a surgical vaccine. But, you know, once you put that that vision out there, that idea, uh, it takes on a life of its own, and the media, of course, will run with it. And a lot of people who, who you know, journalists who aren't uh, experts in this area take that, and they reinterpreted it the way they write their stories. So I think that's calculated, too. I think that that's something that uh, the people who are involved in these studies would like to, to be out there. Now, what's their motivation? Because... It would seem, I think, from all the things we're talking about, they went out and did something that I think is ethically questionable to begin with. Mm -hmm. You know, this sort of um, right. randomized control trials on a group of unsuspecting <laughs> Native Africans. Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, in my estimation, I don't know that that sort of a study would ever pass an ethics board in this country. Mm -hmm. um, so there's Unlikely. something ethically yeah. questionable going on there. There according to what you're saying they had a sort of predisposing bias mm -hmm. to suggesting that circumcision was important and it seemed almost like they were going out to prove an idea that they had um and not really approaching this ob uh, as objectively as they might have um but i mean it's not just these researchers we're talking about uh, the bill and melinda gates foundation now has sort of glommed on to this notion mm -hmm. that circumcision is an important tool they're more careful with the way they mm -hmm. talk about it. They say it's an important tool. Of course, you also need to, you know, teach safe sex practices and use condoms and all that. But this is an important sort of adjunct tool. Mm -hmm. um, so, what what would the motivation for for doing this be, and why are what you know why are they doing it? Well, yeah, I think it's important to be very careful about sort of divining the motivations behind what. What, why someone is has an interest in a particular area of research, um, and and it's hard to know unless the people involved actually tell you. 
Um, and I don't think we have any sort of definitive statements from, from them, uh, from the pro-circumcision side. I think we can speculate a little bit. I think it depends on who we're talking about. I think that the fact that most of these researchers are Americans and the United States is a majority circumcising society. It is a country where circumcision has become a part of the culture, um, uh, has something to do with it. I think that when you look at a guy like Bailey, well, Bailey is an American researcher. I don't think he's Jewish. I think he's uh, a guy who um, has uh, gone on record uh, saying that, uh, you know, he circumcised his own sons um, or his, own, his one son in particular. I'm aware of one conversation where he mentioned to, to uh, an intactivist who had approached him and spoke to him at one point, and he said that, uh, you know, that there... He, I think he said there were at least a dozen or more reasons why he circumcised his own son. Um, I mean, clearly, if you're emotionally invested in a, in a procedure uh, and you're, for whatever reason, in a position of, of, of being able to push that procedure, um, you're going to do it. I mean, in a way, I think it's just a cultural thing. Um, when it comes to to Bertrand Olver, who's another one that was behind one of these RCTs. You know, he approached us when we were at the International AIDS Conference in Rome this last summer, and um, he asked us if we were circumcised. There were three of us there at the table. Uh, and I was so taken aback at that uh, because it didn't seem relevant to our discussion. Um, so I asked him, are you circumcised? And Bertrand Olver said, no, he wasn't. So what is his motivation? I have no idea uh, what it could be, but I suspect it has something to do with careerism, maybe. It might have something to do with his view that uh, circumcision is an acceptable practice in a place like Africa where um, you know he's, he's from the first world and he's swooping into the third world or into an underdeveloped world where he can sort of be someone's savior. I, I don't know what his motivations are. We, we just don't know. But clearly there's something going on there. And it'd be nice to, to have some answers as far as that goes. And then um, Daniel Halperin, I'll, the only thing I can really say about him is that he has actually stated on the record in a media report um, around the year 2000 that he feels that, that it is his um, lot in life to go out and spread the practice of circumcision, uh, something that his forebears as a Jewish man uh, had introduced to the world uh, at some point, although that's not true. I think that circumcision was propped up, popped up in a lot of different cultures, but that was what he said. He said that his grandfather was a moil, and this has kind of become uh, a motivating factor for him. So we've got sort of an answer from Daniel Halperin, but the other two we, we really don't other than you know, what we can speculate. And these people are promoting, are using the data that they collected from the randomized control trials to promote routine infant circumcision, is that correct? Well, that has been the, that has been the, uh, the next step. And, um, you know, when UNAIDS and the WHO came out and said that, you know, we are now recommending circumcision for adults under conditions, sterile conditions with informed consent and all of that, they were very careful to say that this is something that should be applied to adult males, men who are sexually active. 
Um, they'd said nothing about infant circumcision. Well, most of us in the intactivist community, being skeptical as we have been sort of trained to be <laughs> with this issue, knew that this was going was gonna to start moving in that direction. And it wasn't within a couple of years that they started talking about how we should do this to infants. We should incorporate this into prenatal care, postnatal follow-up. We should make this something that is like vaccinations where we go in and we vaccinate and we circumcise and where men don't have to be convinced, uh, which is code for saying we don't have to worry about informed consent. And, you know, this becomes so much easier. And they often say that it's safer for infants, which is news to the roughly 100 plus infants that die every year in the United States from circumcision. But still, they say it's safer. They say it's programmatically easier to roll out. And they have all these things that they say. And uh, so this last uh, summer when we were in Rome with Intact America, there was a, a, a guy there who'd just been hired by Johns Hopkins uh, in their uh, programming arm. It's, it's part of the university, but it's essentially their programming arm that goes into Africa and rolls out these various um, programs, uh, HIV programs, including the circumcision program. And he basically was hired. He's from Eritrea, and he had a name that I couldn't, pronounce much less remember precisely so I won't offer it uh, but I can find it uh, for you if you need it um, and um, he said that he'd been hired specifically to begin to roll out infant circumcision to get the programs in place to begin to incorporate them into the prenatal and postnatal programming of these various countries in East Africa where circumcision is fairly um, uncommon um, except in parts of Kenya. And, uh, and so, yeah, he, I mean, this infant circumcision thing is, is, is really starting to be pushed, and they're starting to create the programs that are going to be uh, at the forefront of this effort. I think what's really happened is that they found that it's very difficult to circumcise adult men. It's going to be very hard to convince the majority of adult men to be circumcised. Yeah, they may be doing hundreds of thousands of them a year, but we're talking about millions and millions, you know, tens of millions of men. So it's not like 100,000 every year. I mean, you're just not going to get there. I mean, you're going to have to be doing a lot more than that. And so I think what they've decided, and I think one of their selling points, is that infant circumcision is the way to go if you're really going to cover vast numbers of, of, of people. And I think one of the most remarkable and disturbing things to me about this and this move, I mean, we'll get into uh, some of the flaws with the randomized mm -hmm. controlled trials in a little bit here, but um, just this move from the RCTs to infant circumcision, there is no evidence that I'm aware of, direct evidence, that circumcising infants reduces HIV anywhere. In fact, we have quite a bit of evidence to the contrary if you look mm -hmm. on a population basis. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm not mistaken, the UN AIDS report from 2009 that came out sort of looked at 18 countries. Right. And a majority of those countries, the, the inverse was true, that, right. that the, the cultures in which infant circumcision was a norm or a more normative practice tended to have higher rates of right. HIV, which would tend to suggest that as a public health measure, it's a complete failure. Um, so not only do we not have any direct evidence that infant circumcision prevents the acquisition of HIV later in life, we have quite a bit of evidence to the contrary. I mean, it's it just... Yeah, right, right. And, yeah. And, and I think, well, I mean, 
I mean, if you start from their perspective, what they're saying is that if we circumcise these infants, by the time they get to the point of sexual debut, they will, they will already be prepared to uh, enter their, the age of, of consent, the age of, of sexual debut, without any other interventions. And they'll already have that protective, uh, whatever it is, uh, in place. And the fact of the matter is, is, uh, you know, between the time that a, a child's born and the time a child has enters the, the age of sexual debut, there, that's a lot of time to, you know, acculturate and um, teach and educate and, and kind of prepare a boy and women, girls as well, uh, to avoid HIV. I mean, it's not like the circumcision at that age will then sort of obviate the need to, to, to do the education part of it. But they, I think, have this idea that, you know, with very, very high rates of HIV and the, you know, 20, 30 percent, say from anywhere over 6 percent, let's say, is a very is considered a, a epidemic levels, um, you know, that, that you won't have to have this intervention. But at the same time, you know, if you're talking about trying to bring down those levels to first world levels, then you're right. You know, circumcising a person as an infant doesn't have any kind of, there's no evidence behind that that's going to that's gonna prove or to show or to support doing it at that age. And <clears throat> I think a more um, sort of apples to apples comparison would be the United States to Europe, uh, where the, the rate of circumcision is quite low and so is the rate of HIV. And if you look at the United States, we have high circumcision, and comparatively, we have higher rates of HIV. Um, if you were to look at uh, Africa and compare, you know, let's say a country like, uh, take a country like Malawi uh, or Zimbabwe uh, versus some other country that has higher rates of circumcision like South Africa, and I think you'll find that in those countries, you've got lower rates of HIV among the intact than you do of the circumcised. Um, so I, I don't want to sort of overstate the case and sort of confuse the issue because this is a very complicated area and I'm not entirely clear in my own mind exactly uh, you know where the evidence is and exactly what the justification of, of, of circumcising infants versus adults except for just the sheer ability to do it versus not being able to do it as effectively and as widespread uh, among adults. But, uh, but there's a lot of issues there that, that does need to be uh, explored and uh, studied and, and, and looked at. Yeah, and I mean, to my eyes and to anyone who's sensitive to the history of circumcision in the United States, this just seems like another sort of rationalization for continuing what really is a cultural practice more than, more than anything else. I, I would totally agree, and um, I think we can't discount the role of, of money. I mean, this is all about programming. This is all about, you know, going into a community and trying to provide them something they allegedly don't have, and that is a level of health care, a level of attention to a particular disease. There's lots of grant money available for that. And, you know, if you're trying to work on microbicides or you're trying to work on um, for example, uh, something they, they tried to do in a study or they did do in a study where they were giving girls money to delay sexual activity and testing that 
approach to see whether or not it reduced the rates of HIV, that actually worked. They had a study that they actually gave girls money to say no to sex until a certain age, and they showed that that reduced the rates of HIV. Okay, but I mean, is that something that's really going to get a lot of grant money to implement? I mean, it's not very, it's not, it seems like kind of a, a welfare kind of approach to HIV reduction. And it's something that doesn't seem to me would appeal much to the, the powers that grant these kinds of large uh, chunks of money to roll this stuff out. And it, it's not as, uh, it's not as sexy. It's not as uh, kind of uh uh, I, I don't know. There's just something about it that's not quite as exciting as giving money to mobile circumcision units that are going to roll into a community and throw parties and encourage boys to come in to, to be circumcised. And, and so I think we can't discount also the role of money. And, you know, to say we're going to implement an infant circumcision program and we're going to cover 90% of all baby boys born and this is... This is uh, the success is is how many circumcisions we do at that point because you can't measure HIV until 15, 20 years later and then they become sexually active. So the measurement becomes or the metric becomes circumcisions performed, not HIV cases prevented. So um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. It's, this is a very complex area. Now, what are some of the problems um, that people have pointed out with? the way that this data was collected. I, I've heard many people, Ryan McAllister among others, sort of look at um, the methodology of mm -hmm. the randomized controlled trials, and they've offered a number of criticisms. What are some of the central criticisms of these studies and uh, their conclusions? Well, um, some we've mentioned. One, one was uh, the, the uh, loss to follow-up. They, I don't think they took uh, adequate account of the loss to follow-up. Uh, to be able to determine whether their numbers are, are, are solid or not. Another is selection bias. Um, all these men who participated in these trials were of a mind that they wanted to be circumcised at some stage, and they all went into it with the promise that at the end of the trial that they could be circumcised if they, if they wanted to be. Um, the other is there was... Uh, you know, six weeks of healing time that was unaccounted for, which gave the the um, intact group a head start in terms of the number, the actual amount of time that they were exposed uh, or they could be exposed to HIV. Um, there was researcher bias that was often talked about, where these researchers have interpreted the data in such a way as to support their hypothesis. Um, these are some of the big ones. There was also some follow-up, and if I'm not mistaken, one of the things they found was that um, the partners of the men who had participated in these studies had higher rates of HIV after the intervention, after the circumcision. And mm -hmm. I think the, some of the researchers uh, chalked this up to, oh, well, they had sex before their wounds had healed or something like this. But, but mm -hmm. that's also a very troubling trend. Right, and that's the other thing I was thinking that kind of went out of my mind. I think that was unaccounted for and it was kind of glossed over as being not that important, but I think what that pointed to, what a lot of critics pointed to that as, was a uh, indication that some of these seroconversions, some of these infections were not sexually sexual infections. They weren't related to sexual activity. In fact, they were related to um, surgical and other types of, of, 
of interventions, medical interventions, like getting shots and whatnot, and, 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 and iatrogenic type infections that came from medical treatment. Um, so, I mean, as I understand it, again, the numbers are so, there's so many, dealing with so many numbers in these studies and, and in subsequent studies, it's hard to keep them all straight. But there were a number of individuals who seroconverted in both groups who reported no sexual activity. And they were included. So it's kind of like, you know, that implicates one of two things. One, it implicates that your intervention does not account for all your infections or the self-reporting mechanism is not reliable that what they're reporting is not reliable that they were or weren't having sex um, so a lot of questions there and um, but I think that it probably accounts for what you're talking about where the partners were infected uh, more frequently after the circumcisions or, or there were more infections after the circumcisions among partners than there were prior. It seems clear to me that uh, you're taking this practice into a culture, you're not fully educating them. I know that the people who are involved in these trials supposedly got safe sex education, but um, the folk wisdom around this now is that if you're circumcised, you don't need to wear a condom right when you're having sex and that belief that sort of folk belief that seems to be spreading around this is extremely dangerous and very right. much counterproductive in the other efforts that people are trying to educate about safe sex and you know that sort of thing no absolutely i agree i, I think that um you know it, it's it's kind of like you know you've got a message with nuance and that message is you know, circumcision is protective, but it is not 100%. And, you know, you still have to take measures to protect yourself. And that's a message with a very fine nuance to it. I mean, how do you tell people who are, you know, not that well-educated, who do not have access to the kinds of information flows that we have here in the West, that you are to undergo this this surgery that is going to change your sexual experience, that is going to um, be painful in its own right, and yet you still got to wear condoms, and yet you know you're not fully protected. I mean, anyone who submits to circumcision, who is convinced to do it as an adult, is going to have to to really believe in this procedure, and they're going to have to really have some kind of uh, emotional investment in undergo, ungo, uh, going under the knife. And that to me seems to be something that would just obliterate all nuance in the message that this is not a 100% a preventative uh, measure. And I think we've got a lot of anecdotal evidence now coming out of Africa. You, we've seen a number of reports uh, where uh, men have said, well, I'm circumcised, I don't have to wear a condom. You know, even if they say I'm circumcised and I don't have to wear a condom as often, we've still got an issue. And you're right, it it's very much could counteract any of the other messages that are being put out there that you've got to wear a condom every time. Uh, you know, you've got to be faithful to the one you're with, know the, the serial uh, status of the person you're with and all these other messages that they're putting out there, uh, circumcision really complicates that messaging. It occurs to me also that a big part of what's going on now with this push to circumcise African men and babies now mm -hmm. um, 
is a symptom of a kind of desperation around the AIDS epidemic that we thought we'd have a vaccine by now. We thought we'd mm -hmm. have a magic bullet by now, and we just don't. Um, and I wonder, I uh, maybe I'm optimistic, but I think that in my lifetime, we will have something like that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how we'll be looking back at this push in light of an actual vaccine. What do you think about that? Well, I, I, well a couple of things. One, I think that in 2006, well, well, let's go back even further. In 2003, when these studies were getting rolling, I think that the mood was that you know, we, there was a lot of frustration in the research community about vaccines and prevention and the programming that they already had going didn't seem to be working as effectively as they thought it would. And there was this idea that, that you know, any prevention technology that could come along in combination with other prevention technologies would achieve this goal of getting this disease into a kind of endemic stage. That is to say, where it's, it's, it's stable but not growing maybe not going down, but certainly stable, putting some stability into the infection rate. And, and then, um, you know, as time has gone on since 2006, we're five years later, and, you know, the whole scene has become much more optimistic. We've actually had, you know, a cure. I mean, we've had a, a guy in Germany who was cured through a transplant of, a, you know, a bone marrow transplant. Now, that's not something that can be rolled out to everybody, but it, it, it is a kind of a, an idea that, that, that possibly could lead to other therapies. We've had this real push uh, to find antibodies that are very effective against HIV that's had a lot of promising developments in the last two to three years. I mean, we've had a lot of stuff happen in those five years, and I think now what we have is a, is a, is a situation coming up where circumcision in fact could be um, you know something that maybe is not as uh, attractive to the donors and the result of that has been these same researchers coming up with uh, corollary type papers or not corollary but I'd say papers based on the same data that say that you know HPV is is reduced among the circumcised um, you have lower rates of other types of STDs and all these other things. So I think that, you know, as you look at the, at the data out there, as you look at the literature, you're seeing that these researchers are, are, are starting to compensate for these positive developments in, in the HIV research community to try to bolster circumcision as being still relevant. And we saw a lot of that in Rome. We saw a lot of uh, studies showing that men were you know less vulnerable to certain STDs and on top of that they were more satisfied with their sex life and the women liked it more and we had all these kinds of things that didn't seem to be really related to HIV but were being presented and so um, I, I think what you're talking about in terms of of a desperation I think that was very much the case five years ago I think that's less the case today and it's kind of what we were all sort of saying when these studies came out which is you know, you may think this is a good idea now, but in a few years, call it a decade, we may have a, a vaccine, and then what? All these men have been circumcised, and now it's become part of the culture, and now it's a sponge for resources because men think of it as, as essential, even though at that point it may not be essential any longer, uh, even if you believe the studies. So um, 
Yeah, I, I agree in some respect, but I think I think the landscape's changing. I think it's changing fairly rapidly. And I think, uh, you know, just a final point on this. It, it's so interesting to me that there isn't a single one of these researchers who would ever talk about the loss of sexual function as a side effect. It's just not even on their radar. Right. Um, and that, to me, is also ethically problematic. That you, I mean, that you, you get into issues of informed consent here because, um, you know, you're pushing this on a on a, a sort of adult population, um, and there's just no mention mm-hmm. whatsoever of the the sexual function effects of circumcision. Right, and well, I, I wouldn't quite agree to say it's not on their radar. I think they've, in some sense, gone out of their way to try to show or to argue that it has no sexual effect. I think there have been a number of papers written and published by these same researchers saying that um, sexual function is not affected and that satisfaction levels have gone up. Um, they, the, the, these papers that they've written and published typically do not talk in any way, shape, or form about the function of the foreskin. They just talk about before and after. And so they don't say that, you know, the gliding mechanism of the foreskin during intercourse is somehow compensated for by, you know, the provision of uh, lubricants or something like that. You know, even though, in fact, there is some of that going on. There are, actually, they are, we talked to some people in Rome where the whole thing about coming in to be circumcised is if you come in to be circumcised, we'll provide you with unlimited amounts of lubricants. There was a woman there who was in charge of a program that was actually, that was one of their selling points was we will provide you with unlimited amounts of lubricants. It's unbelievable. But I think you're you're right that the functions of the foreskin is not even on their radar, that they don't understand it. They're not really even interested in it. But I do think they are sensitive to the argument that this does change uh, the way that, that you experience sex. And they've gone out of their way and taken great pains to explain that, no, you know, this is it's, it's even better after you've been circumcised. Right. So. And that those, you know, the, the satisfaction numbers that they publish, 87%, I mean, some crazy, right. completely implausible numbers about sexual satisfaction. I mean, there are two problems I see here. Number one, um, all of the sort of sexual satisfaction data that I've read is very, very fuzzy. Um, What is sexual satisfaction? How does a person, you know, know that they're sexually satisfied before or after? If a person's going to actually go through and have a surgery, how reliable is their testimony on their sexual satisfaction or the function um, I recently had a conversation with Glenn Callender in Vancouver, mm-hmm. and he was telling me that um, as an intact guy, um, it wasn't until he became really aware of his foreskin that he could even appreciate what it was contributing to his sex life and to his sexual satisfaction. Right. So all of these sorts of things combine into a, a sort of very unreliable soup of you know, supposed data. Um, right. And then, you, you know, you have these these guys and so I, I take your point that they they see it as part of their rhetorical function to demonstrate mm-hmm. in some way you know quote unquote scientifically right. that there's no uh, detriment to sexual experience um, but in a very loose and non-scientific way from to my eyes in any way no I agree and you know sexual experience and sexual um you know, perception of one's sexual satisfaction is is 
I mean, I, I can't really think of a more subjective area of human experience, you know. I mean, it, it's it, the sheer variety of sexual tastes and acts, you know, that is readily available if you were to Google any of it, you know, you know, is, is an indication that it is such a, a difficult thing to measure. And I think because of that, you know, it's something that, um, I feel comfortable saying that if an adult who's intact wishes to be circumcised and he, he wants to do it for some sexual purpose, who am I to say don't do it? I mean, you know, it, it, it's not the case that intactivists, and it's not the case that me, that I personally believe that circumcision has got this inherent uh, 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 evil to it. You know, it's not that. It is that it is an individual's choice. It's an individual's decision and you know to complicate it with these kinds of claims that it's going to protect you from HIV is just is just is just wrong it's being dishonest and you know the satisfaction uh, studies that they've done and and of course the intactivist uh, can point to other studies that have been done that support our side as well I mean frankly both both sets of studies are you know they are what they are and that is the measurement of a of a given group of people who participate in that study and you know it's like a lot of the studies having to do with circumcision and disease and whatnot you know there's there's studies that support both sides and it's because the researchers are individuals and they bring researcher bias into this into this very very difficult complex uh, highly nuanced area of human experience so um, I just don't think that it's it's a good thing to make claims, uh, sort of absolute claims about, uh, you know, a person's satisfaction post or pre-circumcision. I think that that's, that's just not, uh, it's just hard to make that into a science and to give it any kind of solid metric. And uh, uh, But at the same time, I think the real issue here for me is that to circumcise infants is essentially to rob them of their basic human right to make this decision for themselves. So switching gears a bit, um, can you share with our audience a little bit of a blow-by-blow blow of what happened this summer in San Francisco? This was a very eventful summer here for this city and for intactivism in general. Yeah, um, well, this summer we had a ballot measure added to uh, the city ballot, the ballot that is applicable only to San Francisco. It was a proposition to make uh, circumcision of infants a misdemeanor. And I believe I got the numbers right, punishable by a $1,000 fine and six months in county jail. And um, it had one exception. That exception was for medical need. It had no exception for religion. And um, several different individuals here in town, namely Rick Carrillo, Lloyd Schofield, who was the proponent, and a few others uh, were involved in getting this thing organized, collecting the signatures, submitting them, and complying with all of the different rules and regulations that apply to, to putting something on the ballot. They collected signatures all through the spring, submitted uh, the ballot measure, I believe it was in May or June, and it was accepted a week or so later uh, they had 12,500 some odd signatures of which they verified 7,500. I think they needed 7,100, something like that total. 
So um, the thing was put on the ballot, and then very shortly after that, we had all kinds of uh, sort of backlash in the media and elsewhere, um, and uh, various uh, coalition of, of Jewish groups and medical groups here in the city got together and eventually filed suit to remove it from the ballot based on Business and Professions Code Section 460, Subsection B, which is a statute that essentially preempts any regulation of the so-called healing arts, which includes the practice of medicine, um, of which this was uh, a part. And um, ultimately, that uh, lawsuit ended up being decided in late July uh, against uh, the proponents so that the ballot measure was removed from the ballot. And it was based solely on 460B of the Business and Professions Code. It wasn't based on any of the religious objections, which are all part of the petition. Um, but uh, that's kind of how it went down. And uh, I mean, I, I, there's a whole bunch of detail sort of in the background that I'm happy to go into. And, and of yeah, course, I have my, let's do it. my opinion of, of whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. You know, my, my feeling about this was when I first heard about this, I was initially approached to be the proponent, and I felt like I couldn't do it. It had to be someone living within the city and county of San Francisco. I felt like I couldn't be the proponent at the time, not because I had any objection to going this route, this legislative route, but because I felt like for me to be the proponent would put me at odds with a lot of people that I work with, and not just Jewish colleagues, but others as well. And my fear was that this could have a real detrimental effect in undermining my business. A very selfish reason why I decided I, I didn't want to be the proponent, but one that I felt like I had to do to protect my income, my livelihood. So uh, they got Lloyd uh, Schofield to to be involved, and he lives here. He's retired, so he doesn't have that issue, the issue that I had. And he stepped up right away, was fine, I'll do it. And so he and Rick got together, and Jonathan Conti, I believe, was also involved in collecting some of these signatures. They consulted somewhat with uh, Matthew Hess of mgmbill.org down in San Diego, although I don't think Matthew was that involved in terms of sort of the day-to-day -day collecting of signatures and whatnot. And um, at the time, you know, I thought, you know, this, I don't know. I, I, I guess I didn't think about it very deeply because at the time I thought well okay let's see what happens so they get this thing on the ballot we had this backlash and I began to have some doubts and I began to think this could have a lot of impact on the work that we've been doing for for years in that it could bring a lot of kind of sort of negative feeling down on on, on us and it was right about the time that I was sort of mulling this over, not in a real serious way, but just thinking about it, really, that Foreskin Man happened upon the scene. And the latest issue of Foreskin Man was uh, about, about Monster Moil and all of that. And this, it, it, you know, we started getting all this press about how uh, this was a very anti-Semitic move and the people involved were, you know, anti-Semitic and all these things. And there was even a guy, um, he, it was a rabbi, I don't even, I think he's from back east somewhere, who 
somehow decided that I was deeply involved in this and was linking to my website and saying, see, here he is, you know, he's part of this as well. And, and I tried to engage him a little bit um, online and he really wouldn't engage with me because I, I was shocked because I really wasn't part of this so much as no, no more than just being kind of, you know, in town and encouraging and everything else. But I really wasn't, uh, my name never really came up in it, but all of a sudden I was sort of, sort of a minor target in all of this. Um, but I was just thinking, you know, wow, this is, this is something that could really do a lot of damage to us. And then somewhere in Rome, when I was there at the International AIDS Conference, and I was talking to some of the people that I was there with, I began to think, you know, we've been stuck at 60% circumcision rates in this country since the 90s. You know, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. It's getting a lot of press. You know, we're on the nightly news. It's getting into major newspapers. There's, I mean, people are talking about this. And this is really an important development. It's become a national issue, whereas before it was a very kind of local issue or a personal issue, and it was an issue that wasn't getting so much attention in the national press. And then when the lawsuit happened, um, you know, our side was completely unprepared. And the result was that um Did you just not see it coming or i don't i you know this is very touchy because there are a lot of feelings involved uh with some of the participants and and um i you know i don't want to i want to say i mean this this is this is my belief this is my thought the people who are really behind this, who are really doing the footwork and the legwork, who deserve lots of credit for the courage and the financial investment and the time investment, did not think this through. They didn't consult anybody other than themselves, which is not uncommon in the intactivist movement. I think a lot of people do their own thing, and that's laudatory. I think it's uh, it's the only way that a lot of this work would have ever gotten done is if people were just willing to do it. That's how they approached this ballot measure. Um, what they didn't foresee and what I didn't foresee is that when you start trying to make something illegal as touchy as this, there is going to be an inevitable backlash. And that backlash often translates into litigation and we didn't have anybody lined up. We had no attorneys on board. There was one guy consulting up in the North Bay who was an attorney who had a full-time job working for the state. And super smart guy, very intelligent, very engaged, lots of good advice, but couldn't put his name on anything. We had a situation where there was no time to respond. The law firm involved was a uh, Morrison Forrester, you know, an international law firm that was doing this pro bono and had, you know, a partner involved in writing up the petition and filing it. They had a full-time associate working on it. And who, what did we have? We had a bunch of part-timers who weren't even really involved and no one wanted to put their name on anything because they were all afraid, including myself. Ultimately, I did put my name on an amicus brief that I signed and filed for DOC, Doctors Opposing Circumcision. But the fact of the matter is, is that we just weren't prepared. We were not prepared for the backlash, ultimately. And, you know, whenever we bring this up, whenever I brought it up with, with people with a vested interest in it, it's a very difficult, touchy issue. 
because you know when you put your ass on the line and you expose yourself to not just you know abuse but you know real threats I mean Lloyd had people coming to his house knocking on his door um, it's hard to take that criticism to say well we could have done this differently and the real question that that I was asking was what are the lessons you know okay this happened fine what are the lessons for the next time we try to go this route or we try to do something else I mean an idea that that I thought was interesting is how about just a just a, 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 a referendum on the issue you know do you believe this is a good or a bad thing in California we can put these things on the ballot they often do for things like you know the Iraq Afghanistan wars you know you know we as a city don't support this or do support this Berkeley's had that on their ballot why couldn't we do this for circumcision and uh, and then no one's ox is gored so to speak no one's rights are infringed no one is told what they can or can't do it's just a a way of getting media attention which is really initially what we were all thinking which was you know it's not gonna pass but we're gonna get people talking about this issue you know of course a lot of this centered around foreskin man yeah um, what, 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 what's your take on that whole thing well my you know I, you know, on the one hand, it's like what horrible timing. On the other hand, what, how, I mean, how sort of tone deaf can you be <laughs> in a way? You know, I mean, it's, um, I, I just, I don't believe in my heart. I don't believe Matthew is any kind of anti-Semite. Um, I think he is a genuinely, uh, genuinely sort of, an arch enemy of any advocate of circumcision. It doesn't matter whether you're, whether it's from a Jewish perspective or just a plain old redneck American perspective, you know, uh, which is kind of my background. Um, the, the the fact of the matter is 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 um, he should have known better. You know, I mean, I don't. What what can you say about it? I mean, he. I mean, the first one was about the medical profession, the second one is about moils, the third one is about the tribal circumcision. I mean, yeah, okay, but there are, there are, um, there are levels and layers of sensitivity about uh, this practice in different contexts, and you just have to be sensitive to it. And, you know, all of our objective is, is to reduce the level of circumcision in society, to, to sort of try to reduce this act on unconsenting babies and if that's our objective then we ought to be very careful about how we approach it and we shouldn't have any kind of sort of rigid uh, agenda about we're gonna go off after all people equally um, you know there was a big uh, almost angry uh, kind of discussion about whether there should have been a religious exemption in the ballot measure and my view is, why not? There were a number of people who said a religious exemption is out of the question because, you know, it wouldn't work. Everyone's got to be protected or no one's protected. If the equal uh, protection argument's going to work, then it's got to be applied to everyone. You can't say you've got to have equal protection as between girls and boys, but exclude certain boys, okay? My view on that was that, yeah, that's... 
that's perfectly logical and it makes great legal sense but is it does it conform with the real world I mean ultimately if we were able to get something on the ballot and keep it on the ballot and it got this discussion going without triggering these accusations of anti-semitism ultimately the result the fallout the outcome is a reduction in circumcision ultimately because you're bringing people into the conversation that maybe have not been part of the conversation before and they're gonna some of those people are gonna take your side and that's the objective bring down the numbers of of circumcisions uh, of infant boys and so to me it's it's easy to say that yes we put in a religious exemption if that's our objective and um, but that didn't there were a lot of detractors from that. A lot of people felt like that. That just is it's just unacceptable. Do you believe that had there been a religious exemption, things would have played out differently? I yes, I I do. I think that. I think the religious exemption would have undercut the idea that that anyone's religious beliefs or practices were being tread upon that likely would have made it less likely I think that we would have had this coalition come together to file suit maybe they would have filed suit anyway I mean who knows but at least it would have made their argument a lot less plausible I mean ultimately the reason they took it off the ballot was based on this preemption statute it wasn't because of Which the religious stuff. To do with the religious stuff right? yeah so I mean the, the grounds it was decided on it wouldn't have mattered but to say that it doesn't have any impact, I know is just not true because that's not how law works. I mean, law is uh, law is highly subjective, and you know, to me, the statutes are in all the practice I've done. You know, in criminal law, the statutes are are most of the time a, a kind of guide. Okay, but if if there's a particular objective or outcome that uh, you know, someone wants to get to. He can probably legally reason his way to that objective. And I'm thinking that this is no different. Um, but, you know, again, we're second-guessing, and that, I think, upset some people to second-guess what, what the outcome could have been. But I don't think we would have been second-guessing ourselves so much if we'd had a kind of planning period and a kind of period where we had you know brought in people who could think this through and uh, you know try to come up with various scenarios that it might play out and be prepared for it and if you could talk to the intactivist world now what would your advice be well I, I have opinions on on that and I have opinions on an even, even broader overview of the intactivist movement but what I think in terms of, of a ballot measure or any kind of an effort any kind of discrete effort that's going to try to achieve a particular change let's say in the law or the practices of hospitals let's say and how they promote or don't promote or carry out the procedure of circumcision on infants or whatever I think whatever it is you're trying to change it has a very discrete definable kind of objective I think needs to be thought out I think that there needs to be a period of reflection that would allow us to to anticipate what's going to happen. And 
you know, if you can anticipate what's going to happen, you can have mechanisms and people in place to respond. I'm not saying it's going to change the outcome. It may or may not. But the point is, is that if you've got some way uh, to to fight back, you know, if you're going to stand a fighting chance, you've got to have thought about it prior and you've got a plan. And this whole, whole period of intactivism of the last 30 years where it's all been ad hoc, it's all been individuals just working, you know, on their own little projects, which is fine and is important and needs to continue. That period, we have to mature out of that. And we have to get into a period where we are actually working in concert with each other, taking advantage of each of our strengths and, you know, dividing the labor, okay? And we've got those who are working on the legal side. We've got those working on the legislative side. We've got those working in the arts. We've got those working in media. We've got those working in grassroots. We've got all of these bases in areas and places where you can fit in, okay? And you can come to, to intactivism and say, what do I want to do and where do I fit? And then choose an area and work towards that. And, you know, it's a kind of formalizing our efforts and channeling them into uh, sort of defined institutions uh, in a way. And that gets to the larger issue. And that is that for years this has been a kind of pay-as-you-go, self-financed, um, uh, activism from the heart, um, highly personal, highly emotional kind of approach uh, to, to making this change in the world where infants aren't subjected to circumcision any longer. And I think we've, that's got to change. I think we are at a point where we've got enough critical mass of interested people, people with energy, talents, resources, so that we've got to start to make the, the business of intactivism pay in some way. So when people are out there doing this work, they aren't doing it, you know, evenings and weekends, you know. They're doing it as their day job. And believe me, lots and lots of people doing a kind of a nonprofit work are doing it and being paid for it. And we've got to be the same way. And, you know, whether it be, you know, disease eradication, such as the HIV AIDS efforts in the world, whether it be alleviating uh, hunger, malnutrition among children, whether it be getting uh, vaccines to the developing world, whatever it is, the mechanisms and the institutions and the path to success in those various efforts, you know, has grown up in a defined, uh, sort of uh, understood and received way so that people know when they go into this area, they know how to do it, you know, they. You know, they get their degrees in public health and they go out into the field and they join the NGO that does that kind of work. We've got to do the same thing. And I think that the lesson from this summer is not only the ballot measure, but also Rome. You know, when we were in Rome, we see all these people arrayed against us. We're there on our own dime. You know, we're paying for our own way. We want donations and out of our own pocket to be there to say, you can't be circumcising in the world and expect HIV to stop in its tracks. You can't do that. And all these people are coming up to us and, you know, they're part of UNAIDS. They're part of uh, WHO. They're with universities. They're with 
you know, all these different groups and, you know, their airfare was paid, their, uh, their lodging was paid for, they didn't have to pay to sign up for the conference itself. Uh, you know, they're on salary. I mean, we can't compete with that any longer. We just can't. And if we're going to have an effect long term, and if we want this to be more than just a ragtag bunch of people, uh, Immediately, admittedly with their heart on their sleeve doing this work, we've got to start to formalize what we're doing. And I'm hoping that that's starting to happen. David Wilton, thank you so much for joining us on the Cut Podcast. Uh, where can people learn more about your work? Well, my work is uh, all through my website, Circumcision and HIV, all spelled out, no spaces, no dashes, uh, .com. Um, and uh, that's kind of my platform and so if you want to know what I'm doing at any given moment in intactivism that's where you can go that's our show if you have any questions comments or suggestions please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com and if you like what you've heard today please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com 